Hi, this is Mary H.K. Choi, and you're listening to Hey, Cool Job. My guest today is Mei Chong, an award-winning investigative journalist and freelance foreign correspondent based in Afghanistan. She's written for The Atlantic, Harper's, The London Review of Books, The New York Times, and The Intercept. She's a visiting scholar at the NYU Journalism Institute and a co-founder of the Kim Wall Memorial Fund, founded for the journalist who was killed in Denmark while reporting a story aboard a submarine. May and I are going to talk about her vital and challenging job as a war reporter, but given the murder of her colleague and the post-Weinstein media landscape, we're also going to talk about hypervigilance and working in hostile environments without losing your mind. I'm in love with my Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks for coming. So let's start with a thing that you're known for. Um, I'm not going to lie to you. I feel like there's kind of two camps, people who are heavily invested in what's going on in Afghanistan and people like me who like know that it's a thing and that it's been a thing since 9-11-2001, but whose eyes glaze over just ever so slightly when it comes to details. What made you move to Afghanistan at the top of 2013? Well, I started being interested in what's going on in the world because of 9-11 in a way, right? I mean... <clears throat> I how remember. old were you? Well, so I'm 30 now, so how old would I have been? Definitely in, like, I was, like, in junior high, probably, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, I mean, I, I'd always... I'd grown up reading newspapers. I remember the other sort of seminal news colliding into my personal life moment was actually, I remember the um, star investigation coming out with Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. And I remember my mother sitting me down and saying, listen, parents and the calls like out together, we're trying to debate whether to let our kids keep watching the news or reading the newspaper or not. And they're not going to let theirs do it, but I'm going to let you decide. So you can just kind of read away and ask me five questions. Whoa. And I remember reading it, being obsessed with it, but not really understanding the contours of what was going on. Right. So I remember, do you remember the Gap dress? Of course. The dress with the semen. So I did not. The blue dress. The blue dress. Of course. Did not get what semen was. I remember like looking it up in the dictionary. And if you look up semen in the dictionary, they tell you to like, they're like, go see sex. So you go to sex. And then <laughs> it just like keeps referring you back to like the other word that you don't know. <laughs> right, right, right. And I think I only understood what all of that was about like years into it, like years later. But anyways, this is a digression. So then the other seminal moment, news, like seminal moment, reading, yeah, mm -hmm, nicely done, was the haha. -ha. <laughs> uh, it, it was 9-11. And I think that was the first time when my personal life was, it was kind of like joining the wider currents of what was happening in the bigger world. And history in scare quotes was happening on my watch in a way. Mm. And so then that dictated what I applied for in college, which then dictated what kind of internships I did, which then kind of formed my network, which then, you know, on and on and on. It's similar to the way that I think a lot of parents, generations of my friends' parents, for example, a lot of them are um, Russophiles. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that word right, like Russia speakers and stuff. And people of like my contemporaries, there's a lot of like Arabic speakers and you know, people who are interested in the Middle East, all that stuff. And you it's undeniable that like none of us are unique. We're just kind of responding to things that are happening. And I think I was just responding to something that was happening. But why Afghanistan specifically? It's a really convoluted story. It involved me wanting to move to a country where I could freelance from abroad. Okay. And do you speak Farsi or Pashto or anything? I, no, I don't speak Pashto, but I do speak a little bit of Farsi okay. enough to like set up interviews and talk to people. Um, it's a pretty reasonably easy language to learn. Um, yeah. So you're freelance. And so that means that no one sent you there. You sent yourself there. <laughs> Correct. What, so, but like what's good about that and what's kind of fucked up about that? There's no safety net of any kind. You know, I mean, if something happens to you, it's not like you have like K&R insurance, like kidnap and ransom insurance. It's not like you have health care. 
um, there's there's nothing really. You're really truly all on your own. You're literally just buying a plane ticket and then going to there. Yeah, I mean, if there again, like there's there are some preambles. Like I try to go freelancing. I tried freelancing in Karachi, for example. I thought I was going to live in Pakistan, and that didn't work out. I went to Kabul to pick up a visa. I ended up staying, kind of thing. Um, as one does. As one does. Yeah. yeah, yeah Honestly, yeah. I think the violence in Karachi. I I stand by this. It's randomized. It's more terrifying than the violence in Kabul. Okay, is my theory. So yeah, so the the terror of just being alone is a thing that's scary. But the thing that is good is that I only really do stories that I want to do. Mm-hmm. There's never, I mean, a lot of people have side hustles, and I kind of feel like maybe I should get one. But um, besides that, I yeah, I mean, I I'm really I'm spending a hundred percent of my time doing things I want to be doing, and that freedom is really intoxicating. Sure. So you don't look like a war reporter. Only in that you're not like a beardo white American dude in like a flak jacket or some like Euro dude in like a linen shirt like with like, a, yeah, like a fucking, yeah, exactly. But like, that looks like on him a foulard, you know, like <laughs> that kind of like Rafe type character. How much shit do you get for not being what people expect? I mean, I think in polite society, that's not pointed out to me in a really overt way. So I'm sure there are. There's a lot of sort of thinking that goes on in people's heads that I'm not privy to, definitely. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think so much of my conversation with people is, I feel like, me trying to convince them that I'm a real person. How so? Like, what do you mean? Like, unpack that for me. Everything from sources expecting a certain... Like they're they're very surprised when I sort of show up at their door. You know, they're expecting, like you said, the prototypical um, foreign foreign correspondent. The prototype of that is a um, middle aged white man. Yeah, it's like a crinkle faced mm-hmm. white guy <laughs> with like children in tow and the like long suffering wife who like doesn't want to live there and probably has like a drinking problem. You know, like all of those all things. of the things. Thrice yeah. divorce, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm not any of those things. And so that means that, yeah, I mean, I have to be hyper sort of extra. I mean, the problem with me looking the way I look and doing the things that I do is that, like you say, it's um, it's violating a certain social norm and breaking convention. And there's always going to be price for that. And I think the way that I've navigated it before is by... Um, over kind of compensating, really. And what does that mean? Like being like super on point, super smart, super like what? What? What kind of? Form well, yeah, does that all, take? all all of that too. But also, I I really when I entered journalism and I started doing foreign corresponding, I I think I must have thought that the way to do it is by you know I thought I had to be like this like swashbuckly like you know whiskey drinking smoking couple packs a day type person Mm. and so much of what like this year has been about is like unshedding that like unlearning all of that and so then if you have this image of like what you should look like then you overcompensate by like behaving one of the guys like drinking a lot and like you know being very sort of um like not wanting to come across as nothing short of daring so then maybe, yeah, like trying hard. I just like tried really hard. and But then that still means that you're letting sexism define you in a way. Absolutely. Or that sort of like, it's that horrible preemptive, almost like eager to pleaseness where you're like just force shoehorning yourself a little bit into that that sort of thing to fit in yeah and and it's a version of it's it's still letting the dominant gender define you absolutely so are there any pros in looking the way that you do looking the way i do um yeah i mean i don't want to like highlight that too much because i really one of the things that i really resent is when usually older male colleagues of mine We'll say, oh, like, it's so lucky you have, like, access to, like, the other side and, like... Ew, ew! Yeah, yeah, oh, for sure. This is, like, a standard line. And I want to, like... And what what, what, what does that... Them. Yeah, of course. <laughs> what does that imply when they say that? It implies that it's not that I'm... It's not because of my exceptional genius, but because of, like, the thing that I had nothing to do with, mm-hmm. a.k.a., like, being born a woman, that's giving me, like, 
like an advantage of some sort. But whatever advantage that I'm getting, let me assure you, is being negated by the fact that we like still live under the patriarchy. Yeah, totally. Fuck. Absolutely. So you get there in January of 2013. At this point, you're kind of hella late to the party. Like, how do you even get your bearings like your first day? I just kind of cried in bed for six months, didn't do anything. And I read all the things. And so then it was just an education, like being there. Ex- the expat community anywhere in the world is, I'm sure you know, is exceedingly small. Mm. And so then you, whatever, you know, go to yoga or like brunch and dinner and whatever. And every single sort of um, encounter in those first couple months is a learning experience. So what is Kabul actually like? Like we, we, we get that sort of like click through gallery of like the green zone mm-hmm. or like whatever. But like, what is it actually like? I mean, in the way that New York is comprised of all these different um, sedimentary layer of like immigrants coming in and various neighborhoods. It's the same with Kabul, right? Like everything you've seen, the, even the contradictions are true. And so the like, pff, whatever, um, I'm just trying to think. Yeah, like the green zone, the harshness of the green zone is true, as is the like kids flying kites on the hill, as is the right. whatever, <laughs> right, like right. The chi- you know, like, like all the stereotypes are true, as are all the like normal life things. Right, totally. What is like the most rando ass surprising thing where now that you're in Brooklyn, you're like, damn, I miss that. And this is shocking to me. You know, yeah, the thing that I do miss is that. Um, because of this intense overlap between life and work, you really don't know where one ends and the other begins. It means that you kind of feel like you're in summer camp all the time, which could be to your detriment, but with the right people, it really, I mean, I, I, I've made, you know, great friends there and the connections that you have with these people are, um, really like unparalleled and really difficult to replicate and it's of course you're just like submerged in peril constantly yeah and it's it's almost like being like like the children of you know parents who have like a totally act like an acrimonious divorce i don't think this is actually a great metaphor to go with but something actually, really traumatizing happens yeah. to you and then you're in it together not that being an expat in couple is traumatizing like I thought. no that's i was actually more thinking about the movie speed with sandra bullock and keanu and at the end the they're bus. talking about yeah yeah it's <laughs> no, the, we're on the bus no we're uh, everyone's on the bus and at the end she's like you know a relationship based on like tra- like shared trauma or whatever mm-hmm. you know but No, that's kind of what I was thinking. So I'm actually going to read a few sentences of yours, um, which is always really embarrassing because it's like I'm performing your slam poetry (laughs) to you. um, That actually exemplifies what I admire about your specific and particular viewfinder on the front line. Are you ready? I am ready. (laughs) Go for it. Okay, so this is from The Walrus. Um, This is kind of just... uh, a view of Canadian troops packing to leave Afghanistan. Well, this was a couple years ago, right? Like 2000. <laughs> I'm already so embarrassed. No, don't be embarrassed. Don't be embarrassed. I'm not going to read super long. Okay. <laughs> Pallet jacks pick up boxes brimming with the sundries of war. A radio amplifier, a shovel, a first aid kit, some cables, a toolbox emblazoned with do not fucking touch in block letters, a lone tambourine. And now I'm going to read another part from um, your piece for The Intercept that won like tons of awards. Um, And it's about the Kunduz hospital bombing, a.k.a. the one time in 2015 where the U.S. bombed a hospital um, because allegedly Afghan ground troops told us to. And basically a lot of fuck shit ensued and 42 innocent people died. Earlier in the week, Poya had asked the orderlies to pack the dead in as tight as possible. When there was no more space, he asked the cleaners to scrub the front porch of the morgue so that the excess corpses could be stacked there. What Poya hated most was carelessness. Many died undignified deaths in Afghanistan. The least the hospital could do was to show the dead the respect that had eluded them in life. And then this is actually from an early piece of yours um, chronicling a series of alleged gang rapes in a Korean cult in Canada. What happened next, she says, she remembers only in fragments. She claims someone injected her left arm with something and a feeling of weightlessness spread across her body. She was forced to bark like a dog. Then she was raped. So your writing um, tends to be very spare and 
unflinching and strangely poetic, um, like that lone fucking tambourine that I can't really get out of my head. Um, there's no sensationalism because what you're reporting on is already pretty fucking gnarly. Why do you report on human misery? Oof. This is one for the therapist, I think. I mean, like, <laughs> you're super close to just a bunch of stuff. And, like, why do you sit there and chronicle it? There's, there's something about the extremes of life that teaches you about life that you can't really get elsewhere. And relatedly, I think the thing that keeps me going is the, like, incredulity that I feel about the fact that people are, that the incredible privilege that these people are letting me have in, like, welcoming me into their homes, telling me their stories. This is what happened. This is what happened. And I want to know what happened. Yeah. So... How do you spend so much time empathizing with people and pulling their truth and then telling it and then inevitably having to leave? I mean, like, I guess my question is, how do you maintain impartiality from a journalistic standpoint, but also enough just distance so you don't just get swallowed whole? Oof, this is something that I'm struggling with constantly. And it's really, really hard because the brand of journalism I practice is one where I do spend like all the time with you like if I were to be doing a story about your life I mean we would be talking like five times a day like every day for like over a year and like I would know the ins and outs of like what's happening in your life like we I would be like over at your house every day you would like pass out I'd tuck you in and then go home you know like it would be a really intense experience and yeah it is really jarring because these people just kind of remain in your life, of course, because you have these like intense connections with them. But then when it comes to the writing part, I do need to take a step back because I do need to sort of formulate everything that I've learned um, in my head. I do need to sort of take a pause from like real life so I can try to like render that real life um, on the page. Mm -hmm. So there is that weird transition phase for sure. But every major story that I've worked on um, not all the sources, That's that would be insanity. I mean, like, the Kundu story, I talked to, like, I mean, 50, 50 or so people, I think. I, can, I mean, you can't keep in touch with all these people. It's impossible. But um, many of the characters from my stories, I still keep in touch with. Like, I help them with their, like, visa applications or, like, help their kids, like, figure out scholarship opportunities or, you know, like, it's just an ongoing thing. Mm. And... Um, I'm okay with that. And so your work-life balance is trash. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no, it just, no, that does sound like a very careful sort of, um, thing to keep mindful of, I suppose, in terms of like those barriers and borders and like protecting yourself. Um, so do you ever have a situation where your uh, sources get mad at you at the version of the story that you do t decide to tell? So one thing that I am proud of is that there's a lot of drama and sometimes vitriol just before the publication. Um, usually not even by the sources themselves. Maybe like white noise, whatever, people who are around the story, whatever it is. Um, but once it's published people are usually pleased. And I think it's because I, I'll always go into a situation um, promising them that I am here to document what you're doing and I will be, I, I'm here to render the best available version of the truth. And that does not mean that I'm here to like make you look good. No, but I guess that's that's the kind of where your voice comes from. Then, like your style of prose, it's like like there's zero editorializing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that is also a really sort of tricky thing to navigate. Yeah, I mean, my the first draft of any story, there is a lot of like feelings, and, <laughs> and then this happened to me, and like and me, 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 yeah. <laughs> 
expletive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Frank Sinatra has a cold, but so do I. Yeah, yeah exactly. Totally. In fact, I have a flu. <laughs> <laughs> um, so actually on that note, in terms of your reporting and your sources, so something like your story on the um, Médecins Sans Frontières hospital bombing in Kunduz that we were just talking about. Um, there's this part, it's kind of near the beginning, and you're kind of just giving the lay of the land. And you're outlining how the head of the hospital, Guillaume Moligny, is just emailing a bunch of people, just every single person he possibly can, like all sides of the conflict, each sort of faction or cabal or like tiny, tiny, tiny crew that's also involved in the conflict. And it's like a gumbo of like defense ministries, UN, NATO, Afghan National Army, insurgency people, U.S. counterterrorism people. And it's like fact after fact after fact. And so if I was a researcher on the piece, the whole like, so much of your stories would just be highlighter. And as a freelance person, how nerve wracking is it in this space when everything that you write about is comprised of a trillion facts about a 16 year old clusterfuck of a war? Like how much pressure does that feel like when you're publishing a piece? Immense, immense pressure. I mean, I'm always paranoid about like a lawsuit, frankly. But the beauty of The Intercept, for example, is that there's, they have an incredible team. I worked with like top class world leading researchers. Um, they have a very, very rigorous fact checking process. I just I'm coming up with, uh, with another investigation with them soon. And I just wrapped up the fact checking process with them. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 the how long does that rigor, part take the fact checking yeah. process? So the MSF story, because it was rushed we did it in a week, but it was like being on like three different phone calls for the whole, I don't, I def, I did not take a shower that week. I remember. <laughs> and then I remember I had to do like a TV thing at the end of it and like taking the shower for the first time and realizing, oh, I haven't taken a shower in a week. Yeah. Um, the one that we're running now, that's something that I've been working on for a very long time. And there wasn't, there wasn't like a time constraint on it. And so um, we worked on it over the course of a couple of weeks. Okay. And in terms of like that hospital, were you there on the ground? Yes. Which is why, I mean, because people were reporting it that whole year, like breaking news, breaking news, breaking news, but yours was very much like the exhaustive sort of fully reported fleshed out piece on it. Um, do you ever get tired of reporting the space where like literally every comment is somebody going like, well, actually, meanwhile, they weren't there and like <laughs> telling you like nitpicking shit about like what you got wrong and like all that stuff. Like I have this like fantasy that war reporting is like worse than like reporting on like gamers. <laughs> Why? Tell me. No, I just feel like because like so many comments is about like minutia. Mm hmm. And dick measuring. And, and such flagrant dick measuring. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just, that's the sort of parallel I'm trying to make, mm -hmm. like really unkindly and somewhat lazily. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that's what the space is. Like, do you ever get tired of it? Uh, yeah, but I think referring back to what we were talking about earlier, I'm not taken seriously, really, in a way from, like, I can't compete with like, men who actually do come across as like, oh yeah, I'm a war correspondent. And so I Is just, that true? I don't I just don't play the game. Like I don't play like so the one of the awards that the MSF story won was the um Prix Bayeux in uh, Normandy. And I I mean that trip was just a mess. Like I just went there for the weekend for the to like pick up the award and I land and then I get the um, news alerts about um, the police in Denmark finding Kim's uh, head. I mean, we should also maybe mention in brief yeah. what happened with her. But so then I, I land I and I'm rushing to like catch the train. I hate the French. They don't help you if you like pronounce some fucking word wrong. And so I'm like rushing. Totally. And they have the word in their head. I they know. know what they know. <laughs> they they know. fucking know what I'm trying to do here. Totally. <laughs> and so then I'm um, waiting for the train. And then, um, uh, yeah, I, I get these alerts saying that, you know, her head was found in a plastic bag. And so Kim Wall is, we talked about at the top of the show, um, a colleague and friend of yours. And she was f a fucking hardcore reporter. Like, it's kind of this bananas situation where, like, 
the story didn't even seem that dangerous. So basically, the 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 story is that she disappeared after boarding the um, Danish inventor Peter Madsen's submarine. He's like the inventor of these like little submarines off the coast of Copenhagen. And then days later, just pieces of her body just kept surfacing. And there was a trial and all that stuff. So this is the process by which you found out that your friend was killed. Yeah. So I get like a series of texts from people. And then I still have to get on the train, get to the ceremony and like perform. I had to perform that weekend. And I was the only, I mean, maybe I should, I should shy away from superlatives, but and maybe there was like another woman of color in like the 14th row, but I didn't see her. Right. And it was a predominantly white male oriented environment. So you're there, you're tap dancing, you get this really prestigious award. In that moment, you're getting this award, you're probably wearing a nice dress or something similar. And probably her death is reframing everything you thought and recasting every aspect of your job up until that point. What did that feel like? Really disorienting. And it's an ongoing process. Yeah. I mean, I've told people no future questions are allowed. I don't know what I'm doing in the future. Yeah. Um, I had gender is something that I hadn't really considered in a deliberate way until this year, frankly. And... Yeah, it's making me recalibrate a lot of decisions that I've made Mm -hmm. in my life. And, you know, just to give a little bit of context so that we're not doing the whole like, you know, Kim Wall, professional European victim aboard a submarine. Like she was a badass and she wrote about like nuclear weapons testing, like Idi Amin's torture chambers. Did she talk to you about this Peter Madsen story going into it? And like, was she ever thinking that any aspect of it was like sus or like dangerous um yes she did tell me about it because we shared you know stories that you know stories that we were working on we would workshop them together and so it is something that she mentioned to me um because she was also you know in town talking to editors about it and uh no she had no reason to think that he had a uh dark side because i mean he's like a public figure yeah it would be like yeah i know exactly he he's he's a bit celebrity you don't when you go see someone who's famous and has a wikipedia page you usually don't think they're gonna like do something terrible to you right and i mean i'm i'm also happy to talk about the like implications of what happened to her but talking about kim is very hard for me okay yeah so in terms of like relating it back i guess to the kind of work you do what kind of truths were you forced to face in terms of how women reporters are viewed just navigating the world? So I wrote a story about Kim, what happened to her. And I mean, the main reason that I did it was because it made me feel better. Yeah. But um, the the thing that made me really sort of commit to doing it is the response that I heard from otherwise sane people who were saying things like, um why why was she there like couldn't she have done it over the phone betraying total lack of understanding of how journalism works and then also just you know a form of victim blaming saying why was she there alone why was she wearing a skirt so late at night and these are things that people were raising to me right they knew that i knew her um and it really yeah i mean it's been to use the parlance of our time a very triggering thing making me realize that um, e- even I mean, the most so the most extreme form of this kind of um, misogyny playing out is you being raped and murdered, right? But then on the other spectrum, and I'm not putting them on the same continuum, but I'm just saying that um, the thing that women reporters face on a daily basis is, you know, a, a, a classic complaint is um, lecherous men, right? I mean, we because we live in a men's world, men are the ones who are doing interesting things. Men are the ones of power, um, which means that we, I mean, I, I end up spending a lot of my time talking with men because they're the ones who are doing things. Right. And, um, uh, you know, journalism, a lot of editors are men. I mean, war reporting, forget about it. I mean, it's a predominantly male, um, uh, man-heavy environment. So then 
um, the thing that I remember Kim and I talked about quite a bit was just realizing that a lot of our conversations were strat just like iteration on one theme. And that theme is this idea of like, what are the different strategies for survival under the patriarchy? And it could be everything from, yeah, like how do you navigate people who are constantly um, harassing you? And it's explicitly transactive about what they'll give you access to. It's, I mean, there's that, like high government ranking officials. I've definitely had that happen. But even, I mean, I, I don't, I don't do, I mean, I really only report in Afghanistan or reported in Afghanistan um, so far. But Kim, um, I remember when she was, <clears throat> when she was reporting in Cuba, for example, um, just the like daily assault of these like romantic advances and uh, from people when you when she was like walking down the street or even like sources she was trying to cultivate all that kind of stuff and uh that is i mean you yes part of it is sure like well i'll give you that like culture fine but um with people who should know better when they do that it's because they see you as a woman first and a, and a professional second and the cumulative effect of being consistently degraded in that way minor but consistent way is something i mean that kind of like continual erosion there's definitely like a palpable change in a person yeah and it's really kind of exhausting and emotionally expensive absolutely so have you had situations in which you've worried about your personal safety no yeah of course okay of course and what kind of hostile environment training have you had and how helpful has any of it been (laughs) i have received many hostile environment trainings so far but i mean what is that even well the most common one that a lot of freelancers um who do frontline stuff have gotten is the um pardon me it's called risk and it stands for reporters instructed to save in saving colleagues and it was founded by sebastian younger um and he did it because his friend and a uh, longtime colleague, Tim Hetherington, was killed while reporting in um, <clears throat> during the Arab Spring with Chris Hondros, another um, photojournalist. And um, they put, I, I, I forget the details now, but back when I did it, <clears throat> it was about, I forget, maybe like, I want to say like 20 freelancers. We came together in Nairobi and it's a week long course and they teach you everything from how to tourniquet people, to how to read a situation, to whatever else. And I think maybe they had like an anti, like a self-defense element at the end as well, if I recall. But the, and I think risk is phenomenal. I mean, I think they're great. Um, if rich people are listening to this, I should definitely donate. But um, the problem with like just the standard practice self-defense courses is that they teach you to do the like say no first and be explicit and you know do the hand gesture in front you know in front of your chest to 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 tell people off but or you know attack the aggressor by like punching them in the balls or whatever but so much of actual life happens in the gray area right like you're i'm not always being assaulted by a stranger in a dark alleyway it's usually someone that i'm I've known for a very long time or someone that I'm trying to get to know because he's you a source. You need something or, from yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. And you can't all, and, and usually there's a power thing where the person who's the aggressor typically feels like he can act upon his like aggression because he has power over you right? in whatever way. And so then in that situation, it's not always possible for you to um, kick him in the balls, kick him in the balls. Right. And so it's like, so certain classes and training courses and this, that, and the other are fine when it comes to like using your hands and thumbs to tie a tourniquet on your bleeding out colleague. But it's just, you know, there's like what nuanced and ever mutable solution can there possibly be for like endemic, like human moments? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that can really only come from like, there being a total fucking revolution where we like hit the reset button and men start treating us like we are like equals. But I really don't think we're there at all. And it blows my mind because I mean, I, I 
I've mentioned earlier, I've been doing, I've been, I'm working on like a sexual harassment, assault, abuse of power story. And so then I'm on the phone with a lot of these women um, who are survivors. <clears throat> and the, they're just so exceptional. They're incredibly smart, um, very capable, super articulate, incredibly compassionate. And I'm just thinking, I'm on the other line, just thinking like, we are the superior sex mm-hmm. like why are we being you know treated like second-class citizen at times like that i just don't get that at all like evolutionarily it doesn't make any sense well also like i'm always sort of stunned by it's it's one thing if there's sort of some sort of like zero sum thing happening where you know with power there there is but where like by tormenting us they're gaining anything <laughs> like that's the part like like I'm, I'm i'm always kind of a little stuck on what the necessary incentive is and yeah like that's the part that really sort of continually i i just have trouble with um so obviously <clears throat> your work could be seen at as kind of on the extreme side but i was wondering if you had any advice for cub reporters in terms of making sure that they're safe Great question. Who are rebo- just like baseline? Abroad? Yeah. Ooh, that's a good. I mean, I think physical ability is really important. So, like, if you are actually doing frontline stuff, and if you're not fit enough to like drag your colleague to safety, I think that does your colleague a disservice. Mm-hmm. So, like, do push-ups and make sure you can run like ten miles and you know, climb a wall if you need to. I think that stuff is actually super important. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of, <laughs> that. I, I feel like your advice, like I don't know what I was expecting, but the nature <laughs> of your advice, I was just like, oh yeah, right. You you do like real shit. <laughs> your job is real as shit. Um, so as a reporter and someone who collects facts and combs through them and sifts them and like, winnows them do you have any advice for women who are being harassed in the workplace um in terms of like what kind of information or paper trail they should gather and also a largely a little disclaimer you're not a lawyer or hr specialist but i was just wondering like if there was anything that you could do to sort of create a paper trail or something like that again not not a lawyer but i have been I've heard that taking contemporaneous notes, for example, is um, a good way to go. What does that mean? That means you are either, let's say I'm working um, as a receptionist and my boss repeatedly makes uncomfortable, unwanted sexual advances by groping me or making comments or whatever. Every time that happens, you um, either confide in a colleague that you trust Or if you don't have that, you can just send emails to yourself saying with like a timestamp. And this is something that I actually did earlier on in my career where I had a similar thing happen. Um, And I took those notes and I mean, I didn't need them. I didn't press charges or anything. But um, even just the act of like having a routine when you were violated helped me feel like I was in control. Also, like it really helps to gather evidence so that you don't self gaslight or minimize the situation to yourself because that I mean, I think that in the post Weinstein world um, (laughs) where you and I met and started uh, (laughs) bonding, so to speak, like you realize that you've forgotten so many violations, just like hordes and hordes of violations. (laughs) It's absurd. Right? It is a completely, completely crazy. And and it's one of those moments where it's like you kind of have like that reckoning where you're like, holy shit, like who is steering this yeah, dude. particular meat suit? Because yeah. like it's actually super wild. Completely. Um, so going back to why you do this work, going back to a more positive note, what does it feel like when you're reporting And you can feel that quickening of a story sort of coalescing. And, you know, because you are freelance and you can sort of train your viewfinder on whatever you like, when you're like, damn, okay, this is it. This is my story for however many months or years. Like, what does that feel like? Ah, It's a magic feeling. Right. It's like chasing the fucking dragon. (laughs) You're such an addict. Yeah. You've like (laughs) slayed all the dragons, saved all the princesses. It's a great feeling. Yeah. And there's nothing like it. And it's really rare. 
and usually you're not even in the headspace to enjoy it. Why? Why? Mm, I don't know if other people have this problem, but when I am knee deep in a project, I can't. I have like sleeping problems, and even when I'm like at a dinner or having coffee with people, I'm kind of like half there and half elsewhere because I'm constantly haunted, haunted, and like mm. obsessed. And so then, and the other thing is, I think most reasonable people, <clears throat> um, if they have standards, won't be like ecstatically happy with the finished product because it is a compromised thing, right? Like you, you start off on this journey with the platonic ideal of the story in mind, and you're stymied by like reality, right? Whether the real, whether it be the reality coming in the form of like an editor or a deadline, or you can't get access because of safety or whatever it is, or people won't talk to you, whatever it is. So then the thing that comes out at the end will never, ever, ever match the vision that you had in the beginning, the thing that kind of got you through the whole process in the first place. And so the like discrepancy in those two visions, I think is always something that um, I experience. On that note, so what did you actually learn from the piece that you did on Pastor Song, who was the Korean kind of cult leader, church leader guy and then there was all of these allegations of rape and gang rape and like hundreds like 400 or something and the more reporting that you did the less convinced that you were that you could find some version of the truth like what what did you learn from that experience that was a great lesson in the fact that there is no truth capital t truth and again what you're doing is just presenting the best available version of the truth given the limitations that you have. And I think that having that humility has helped me tackle bigger, arguably maybe more complicated stories because I don't have the weight of, you know, I need to find the truth. I mean, you're not not going to. But did you feel tormented by the loss of that at at that time where you were like, fuck, fuck? Like, am I going to take an L on this story? Yeah. I mean, I'm always devastated when that happens, but it happens every time. (laughs) (laughs) So actually, how did you even like hear about that story at first? I read it in the Toronto Star, the local newspaper. And judging by the way you say Toronto, you are Canadian. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So did your Korean mom feel some type of way that you were shedding light on what was like a very insular and Korean community? I remember, I forget the details now, but I definitely like did the like dial a mom like yeah. with, um, I forget what they were, but I needed help figuring out what certain words meant or something. And she definitely helped. Um, but she also has this sort of um, uh, unenviable, she's in this unenviable position of like learning about what her daughter's been up to in a very public way. Shit. Right? Yeah. Like, I remember... When the Kundu story came out, <clears throat> I sent her a link, and they were obviously super proud, and uh, which is hilarious because like they don't understand what the intercept is or like anything really. Like I remember, I mean, maybe I shouldn't be outing my mom so much, but I remember um, in a conversation with her, I realized that she thought that NGO was a kind of an NGO. Oh, right, like, like the that. acronym for mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. okay. I mean, they're they're very supportive, but they come from a totally different world. Also, they must be low-key or high-key very freaked out at all times when you're (laughs) in Kabul. Yeah, of course. Of course they are. And I mean, they're really, they're kind of sweet, you know? Like, they'll call and be like, I heard something happened in, like, like Yemen. (laughs) And you're like, that's like, I get why the call, but far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, They have no chill. So, (laughs) So, and and what what did they do? So, my father is a photographer. Oh, shit. Yeah. So, I mean, that's another weird, like, they're not conventional, prototypical Asian parents. I mean, my father was a, is a, uh, someone who, like, rebelled, like, dropped out of high school and, like, did all these, like, different, wandered quite a bit in his 20s, like, did all these different degrees, pursued different paths. So you didn't have to break them in order to pursue your, your job? No. Okay. No. 
And I, I would always use the stereotype against them to like accuse them of <laughs> being, yeah, which as you can imagine, it makes them to know, man. And they, could, they would try to sort of be like, it's not that we're Asian, it's just that we're sane parents <laughs> who don't want their daughter being killed. So, yeah. Right, right. You're like mm, reasonable. And <laughs> and what does your what does your mom do? She's a I don't know what the politically correct term is now. Okay. What is it? She's a mom. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right <laughs> on. So um, also so you you have these stories mm. and they take freaking forever to report and you have to like find homes for them and like all this stuff. How do you underwrite your life? I mean, mm-hmm. media at, like as a whole is fucked. Mm-hmm. So like, how, what pays for your like? pants and shoes <laughs> and like all of that i have had these shoes for five years okay fair so <laughs> my um cost of living is quite low so there's that and and then i just uh i like applied all the grants oh, all right. the grants all the fellowships and then you kind of cobble together a living and i think it really helps if you take yourself out of like the equation of being like a normal person like i don't take like two-week vacations to like Aruba or you know like all the things that you're meant to do I don't do really I have no interest in doing them at least right now so, so then I don't incur expenses like there's no cost really but so you're your job right now sorry you are your job yeah, right now yeah yeah okay. which is like okay I mean I, I I won't be happy like this forever like I'm like or so you suspect yeah or so I suspect <laughs> Like, I'm basically intact, but not quite. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. But We're all doing our best. It's yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. God is working on all of us. Um, <laughs> so you're not returning to Afghanistan, or are you? I may. I mean, I you, you you already t- told me shrug emoji about any future questions, mm-hmm. but, like, I mean. I got nothing for you. Okay. Yeah, really. I mean, I would love to, ex- like, build on Afghanistan, and I don't know what that means. Maybe it's doing the similar things that I've been doing in Afghanistan, a different country. Maybe I I I don't know. But if I mean seriously, I have no idea. Yeah, <laughs> You're like but yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so, but like, what are the sort of? I mean, you must work on like a number of stories simultaneously. But like, what are like hints of tre- tendrils or like phantom like you know like vibes where you're like maybe i will move into this kind of space Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i think the dream for a lot of people who do my kind of work is coming up with a project that is a critique on american this is how i articulate it to myself i would love to figure out something where i could um it, it would be like a critique on american power abroad american policy abroad um that would identify a specific way in which we're failing people. So basically, I know I have like the cake tin, but I don't know what cake I'm baking. I mean, you kind of already do that. I mean, I just even like your recent piece about Scott Guggenheim for Politico, which is basically about the Trump presidency insofar as, it, as like for what it means for like U.S.-Afghan relations as seen through the eyes of Scott Guggenheim, who's like senior advisor to Afghan President Ghani. Like, that's kind of what you're doing. Yeah, no, for sure. But I would, I mean, I want to go see other wars, you know? What is that about? Unpack that for me. (laughs) I mean, Afghanistan is a country that I'm always going to follow. And I spent my formative years there. I basically grew up there, became a real person there. I mean, it's just wrapped up. And I think that's part of the reason why it's been so difficult to, like, try to, like, extricate myself. I mean, so much of my professional sense of self and my identity is wrapped up in Afghanistan. And um, But I recognize that, like, to be able to keep, like, growing, I need to do something different. Um, but I feel like I've arrived at a point where... Um, I, I, I could do it. Like, I understand what's going on there. And I think I would want to tackle a different thing. That okay. Is, oh, that all, all seems like as impossible as it, Afghanistan did in the beginning. So what about the gender wars? The gen- that's a, there's so many fronts, man. There yeah. are so many fronts. That's the other thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I have so... I, I only have questions. Is there any space to talk about like structure the scaffoldings around you know the like problems that we're talking about like the pay gap i mean the fact that we're still getting paid 
I think it's still 80 cents to the dollar, right? Like, yeah. what's that about? I mean, that's a problem, right? So then, like, how do we expand the conversation? Like, how do we move this story forward? I would love to be a part of that, but I just haven't figured out how yet. Well, in the spirit of brevity, clickbait, attention spans, and a 24-hour game show news format, if I asked you how to fix Afghanistan in three steps, what would they be? Oof. Good thing this is not live. I would call Taliban's bluff and uh, pull troops out. They've been saying that, yo, we're not going to do peace talks with you until you pull your troops out. See what happens. I would make every single aid dollar conditional. We haven't done that, which is insane because actually the donors have a lot of, lot of leverage. But for some reason, we, I mean, the, the West scare quotes, we haven't used any of it. What's that about? That's confusing to me. Um, and I would um, enact the Leahy Amendment that says that we can't, um, <clears throat> American tax ta- pa- taxpayer dollars can't go towards um, paying for militias or other groups that are accused of human rights violations. We already have it ready. I don't know why we don't use it. Okay, um, same question about shitty men in the workplace. Fix the problem in three steps. Oof. You're a highbrow thinker. <laughs> I'm thinking You've that. written for N plus one. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> now being punished for my sins. Um, workplace in yeah. particular. Yeah. I would make all the pay public, total transparency when people are getting paid, Um, help people unionize, not make it fucking impossible and illegal to unionize, and I mean, I kind of want to say, like, give every woman, like, a 20% discount on everything. (laughs) For a while. For a while until we get to (laughs) pay gap closes. That would be great. (laughs) So I have a question. So Mm -hmm. you have this wonderful gift that you give to men who you adore in your (laughs) life. And I believe you characterize them as being salvageable (laughs) if they get this gift. But can you tell me a little bit about that? So I'm very tired of the emotional labor that women are constantly being told to do. So much of my job as a journalist is that, but also this idea of, um, you know, in the in the post-Harvey world that we're living in now, I've had a lot of men in my life who've come to me um, with good intentions, wanting to figure out, basically just like wanting me to audit their life, to say like, <laughs> have I done anything untoward? can you tell me because I don't know anymore um and so I've been having those conversations and also have been feeling increasingly agitated by the fact that even the good ones even the men who we consider to be allies um just betray themselves on a daily basis with like just you know like throwaway comments that I think are problematic or ways in which they're understanding what's happening in the world that I think is you know um not woke or whatever or hyper privileged and exactly on some fuck shit. yeah exactly. totally exactly um and yeah just it ver- like yeah displays a privilege and they don't even know it and i am busy i got like a lot of shit that needs to be done and i don't have time to address it every time when it comes up and so the idea that a friend of mine and I have had is that what we're going to do is we're going to do this. If we identify um, an individual as uh, having capacity to reform, if they if we think they're salvageable, we're just going to keep a running list of like all the shit that they say that we think are problematic or like things we want to address. And on their birthday, we're going to be gifting them this list with the caveat that like we only do this because we love you. You're How is that received? I haven't done it yet, but there's one coming up in a couple of weeks, so I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that that actually, it, it doesn't hurt to ingest, inject just a tiny bit of like levity around all this like salvaging of and course. like helping and all of that. Of course. So what do you do for self-care? 
Oh my gosh, this question is the worst question. Makes me feel like a bad human being. An unsuccessful human (laughs) being. No, I mean, just dead serious. The problem is the, like, things that people typically do for self-care, I don't do and don't really like doing. Like, nails done, spa, like, whatever. So, like, that, I don't do any of that. What do I do? Oh, man. This is going to be, we're going to like a really dark place. I love that. I'm just like, what do you do to take care of yourself? And you're like, well, first of all, I can't think of anything. And (laughs) this is a dark territory for me. Like, I mean, do you just like dumb out? Do you have like stupid TV shows? Do you read books? Like, yeah, I I do read quite a bit. I mean, God, uh, Jesus, what kind of books do you read? Yeah. Like really insufferable ones. Just like tomes, like compendiums of like. Maybe. Okay. I'm almost embarrassed to say. Like, uh, name one. Oh, no. Okay, well, um, what am I reading now? Um, I'm reading uh, Philosophical Investigations by Ludwig Wittgenstein because I actually find his um, thinking useful in this time. It has a lot of applicabilities, and that will take a whole other podcast. Well, okay. Well, I am in no danger of ever thumbing (laughs) through this particular book. Can you TLDR synopse me? Um, What is a useful thing that he's teaching me? I mean, I think when violent things happen, like having a friend killed or whatever, you every question is a version of the like, how should a person be, right? And I think just kind of being in his world is helpful to me because it's making me like having metaphysical conversations um, is annoying as fuck to other people. But I think it it, it helps me to be in that space because um, it's just it gives me different tools to think through problems that I've been like ruminating on. So um and and I really this is like an ongoing thing, so I won't be as articulate. But the thing that I've been thinking quite a bit about is like virtual reality. Mm-hmm. The question of like, are we living in a virtual reality? And um, like the simulation hypothesis, yeah, or like yeah. okay. Kim and I used to talk about this quite a bit. And Wittgenstein's, if he had to weigh in, would say that yeah, like we totally could be. And somehow, thinking about things in those terms helps you cope with this version of events that you're living through because maybe it's not real god that is really dark you were right about that (laughs) (laughs) what so how are you i'm fine but you like you've like hung out with me i am i mean like if someone read a transcript of this without my voice maybe they would think like god that bitch needs to like (laughs) Get, get help, help. Yeah, yeah totally <laughs> but i'm fine i mean i'm like you're extraordinarily high functioning it's true reasonably happy and it's fine so so this is actually kind of what i was thinking of reading all your work like i was familiar with you but because i'm so lazy and like kind of like unlearned like i i i'm kind of like the wikipedia version of your articles <laughs> but i just sat down and read everything and I can't help but think, do you ever want to write a movie? I would love to write a movie. And it's a great question because I'm actually writing a script now. Well, because actually your prose is incredibly cinematic. But even like just your Guggenheim story, it like reeks of a George Clooney vehicle. I would watch (laughs) on a plane. Like, no, I mean, like get that. (laughs) Greatest compliment. No, get that Argo money. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, well, it's it's so the script that I'm writing is was inspired by this. Uh, intercept investigation that's coming out where I was so frustrated by all the limitations that reality imposed on me that I just decided to like write my own version of like what could have happened. How did you make sure to preemptively secure the rights for that? Um, I haven't done anything. It's just like a doc, like a scrivener document in my computer. But have you redlined the clause in your contract no, with the intercept I'm a for terrible, that? No, I should go do that. I'm going to do that tonight. Please do that tonight. Like <laughs> if you get anything from, Hey, cool job, please do that tonight <laughs> because that's like the first thing I do. And like, I am not even remotely working in the realm of stories that people want to adapt. Right. Right. Like I should do that. Yeah. You, that's true. Just get the shit red line. <laughs> okay. Like, no, like get that Ben Affleck fucking look. 
I'm so excited for you. We'll see. I, I, I would also not object to you thanking me in the credits for your <laughs> um, Oscar winning movie. So what do you want to be doing at 60? 60. Well, yeah. we're all going to live to be like 100, right? Sure. So then 60 is the like new the 20. New, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, pretty <totally>. much. Yeah. <laughs> what does one do? That's also 20s? really dark. I'm not prepared to live until <laughs> fucking 100. But what do you want to do at 60? And I picked 60 deliberately because mm. you're still like robust and cogent and like just fucking like basically Great metabolism. <laughs> you're like a laser of like you're just like honed at that point right right 60 oof that's gonna be a great decade mm. i think i mean always writing always creating something for sure but i don't know if this will happen but I do think that I am one of those like reporters who think fiction's the higher calling. I'm like whispering now. I know. <laughs> <laughs> also, you're talking to a YA author. Like, guess what team I'm on? <laughs> All right. <laughs> so I would be I would be so pleased with myself if I had moved on to fiction in some way. And also we talked about fronts, all these different fronts. Yeah. I mean, I hope to God that like at 60, I'm not like doing like foreign cards, like war reporting, like all of that stuff. I don't think. I think Why? There, because I think there is like a time and place for things. Mm. And I think this kind of line of work requires like the rigor of youth. And there are older people who do it. And I think they're incredible. The feckless rigor of youth. Right, yeah, right, totally. right. Exactly. The unreasonable rigor of youth. But um, but a lot of them have institutional support. And I don't know. I feel like I, at this point, I'm probably not. Like, no one's going to hire me. And that's fine. Like, I, I the thought of, like, working in an office, I don't think that's going to work out for me. So then if I'm going to keep working for myself, I don't know if I will want to, like, in take on that kind of risk at that point right um but i think at that point like there will be like other different you know more interesting not more interesting just different questions that need to be addressed like today i was talking to a friend of mine about how <clears throat> between like race class and gender we've arrived at a point where we talk about race and gender and you know like in newsrooms there are beat reporters who cover race and gender but no one's talking about class and like in a way, I mean, to be really, really um, glib about it, like once we've like tackled race and gender, like the next frontier is going to be class. And like that's something I would want to like be part of. Actually, I personally think that the second you shift the endemic sexism question to be an issue of class, the, the further we'll actually get in mm. terms of having a dialogue. Because mm. the fact of the matter is going back to incentive and going back to like what do like sort of low to mid-rung men get from any of this, yeah. they, they don't benefit enough. Mm -hmm. Like they are just as oppressed by the class institution. And actually I think like a, a seismic large scale revolt against the the 1% is Absolutely. what's actually going to unify everyone. Absolutely. Totally agree with you. And that's the thing about patriarchy, right? It's not like... It's a front, like a, man. Yeah, and it's not a gender binary where like men are like the... I mean... Fuck, this is really unpopular, but like I do think that we we have a lot more common with men who aren't in the one percent that like either side is even prepared to think about right now. Completely agree with you. And I think that that's where we need to go. And I, if you are going to fight that particular war on that particular front, I will Thelma and Louise this shit with you <laughs> and go off the fucking cliff great it's a date <laughs> <laughs> so we're both in danger um parting words you spearhead a lot of different kinds of organizations and i was wondering um what can people do to help one way in which they can help is to give to the kim wall memorial fund which is a fund that was set up in kim's name um, of scholarship is going to be given out every year to a young female reporter who's going to carry out Kim's legacy. Um, I think you can just Google Kim Wall Memorial Fund. And that's crucial because she too was a freelance yes. reporter. Exactly. And so that kind of gives you a safety net. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, you don't really, you don't need a lot to get that initial start. 
and we're hoping to do that for um, other young women. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. And if people are interested in giving to the Afghanistan cause, there's a wonderful, wonderful um, organization called Emergency. It's an Italian-run NGO. They operate um, clinics and hospitals across the world, but it's but it started in Afghanistan, and they treat um, war victims. Um, I have I know the people who run the hospital in Afghanistan. Um, they are just good people. No frills. I mean, all the money that you give are gonna go directly to saving lives. And you I mean Afghanistan has in, attracted a lot of um, NGOs and initiatives and development. There's so funds and much noise. So much noise. Um, frankly, most of it is bullshit. Emergencies. The yeah. I mean, they're so legit. I mean, I just... You've just vetted they, the ever-living yeah, shit out of them. Yeah, <laughs> they, seen with your eyes. They, with my own eyes, I see them. They're great. They deserve all of our money. It's true. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on, and thank you so much for your candor. Um, yeah, I, I was really excited to have this conversation, so thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. I'm in love with my life. Hey Cool Job is recorded at Red Bull Arts New York. Special thanks to Hassan Insane, Joseph Hazen, Max Wolf, and the song you hear is I'm in Love with My Life by Phases. <laughs>